0: From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing a highlight from this year's Dance on Camera Festival, which is co-presented with Dance Films Association. And after that, we'll go to a Q&A with director Jeff Nichols and actress Ruth Naga, who joined us after a recent screening of Loving, which is nominated for an Academy Award in the Best Actress category for Naga's brilliant performance. Opening the 45th Dance on Camera Festival this year, was Anatomy of a Male Ballet Dancer, which is David Barba and James Pellerito's loving profile of dancer Marcelo Gomez. Through archival footage, rehearsal, and privileged backstage and dressing room interviews, the filmmakers deliver an intimate portrait of Gomez's journey from his native Brazil to the American Ballet Theater, with whom he is celebrating his 20th anniversary in 2017. Following the opening night screening, David Barba, James Pellerito, and Marcelo Gomez joined us for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit that for nearly 50 years has served as New York's premier film organization with screenings every day of the year at the Eleanor Bunan Monroe Film Center and the Walter Reed Theater. Now showing Tomer Heyman's thrilling documentary, Mr. Gaga, which is an immersive experience eight years in the making. Enter the world of Ohad Naharan, the brilliant Israeli choreographer and artistic director of the Bat Sheva Dance Company, who redefined the language of modern dance. For showtimes and tickets, visit filmlink.org.
1: I'm very emotional after seeing that uh, I'm because a
2: mess. Yeah. <laughs> I just was I'm wondering what what else would you like to know? It's like...
1: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say the it's Q&A. a pretty complete pretty complete portrait.
0: Yeah, deal.
1: <laughs> but now, you know, I do want to cuz they started to say about how it all happened with the Facebook thing and uh 7 years later, you said. So in between, uh, probably a lot of preparation, and how was it, to, because was so busy, was so busy, still is. Um, how was it to connect, to do the filming that you did? How, what was the process like?
3: Well, <clears throat> is this on? Yeah. Uh, I would say that Marcello was extremely patient. Um, you know, it was a long journey. And we were uh, pouring our own money into the film and trying to shoot in between other, And we made another film and we were making uh, a TV show and we were trying to put every cent that we had into the film and uh, so we were shooting as we could. Mm-hmm. Um, as we could in terms of our schedule and of course in terms of Marcelo's schedule. So that, that minimized the amount of time that we could shoot.
1: Right. But you had a conception of the film. What came first, your interest in Marcelo as a dancer, or something else? How, what was the beginning like? What You had a conception of the kind of film you wanted to make.
2: Wasn't it the banging of the doors and so on? Like well,
4: yeah. I, you, Olivia Pardina was right. He said that you, you see Marcelo, and you can't take your eyes off him.
1: That's very true. <laughs> um,
4: really, it was... Um, Dancer, partner actor that first made an impression on us, um, but you can't make a film just on that. It was more his story of um, growing up in Brazil being the first of his um, uh, I guess generation to to um, make it, um, kind of like the you know Brazilian Billy Elliot. Um, <laughs> and also his his um just his story
1: right right well what's really fantastic is to see the footage of the young marcello and there's quite a bit of it and you you know it's you see right away that this is a destination this is destiny you know you had all this fo- footage at your disposal was it something
3: that
2: Yeah, I think it was just, like, tucked away in, you know, VHS tape somewhere at home in Brazil. Uh, But, you know, as far as, to answer your question, uh, your previous question as well, you know, I had, we would experience some amazing trips together, like, in Russia and in Japan. And and we knew by the end of those trips that we had something. We had... uh, Almost like gold, you know, because it's so hard to get access to ballet and to actually film it here in the states because of rights and everything, so it was really uh, we knew we had something, and um, I had to we all had to be patient to in order to get to where we are today, because um, I knew that it's a film that i I really wanted to invest uh, for just the years to come for the future, you know?
1: Um, well, it's an exceedingly honest film oh, in every way good. and uh, with a lot of humor and a lot of sadness. And uh, it would appear that your dad has still not come to see you or has he come to New York now for uh, your 20th?
2: No, he hasn't. No. no. That My 20th is in May, in um,
4: May? and we shall see. <laughs>
1: As he promised. He, he did to come? see
4: the film. He saw the film recently. Yes. And he did say, when is Marcelo's 20th anniversary? Uh-huh. What's the date? Which I've told him. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I, I did want to say um, yeah. a little bit about why Marcelo. And I think it's part of well, hopefully what you see in the film, which is that I think he wears his heart on his sleeve. And that's really attractive to us. Uh, sometimes when you go to ballet, uh, especially for people who don't know dance, it can feel very cold and and distant. Um, And a lot of dancers can sometimes feel like, you know, they're very regal. And Marcelo just draws you in. He's so warm. Uh, He commits, uh, you know, a thousand percent to what he's doing. And we just, from the first time that we saw him dance, we thought there was something different about him. Uh, Marcelo mentioned the banging of the doors in Swan Lake um, when he realizes his mistake, and he runs to the back and bangs, you know, bangs on the doors, he really bangs on the doors. And we were like, who is that guy? We want, we want to get to know him. Um, and I think what we were hoping to do with this film and what we've tried to do with, you know, the other documentaries we've made is to make you feel like you're in the room with him, to create a rapport that's close enough so that it feels, even though the camera's always there and you always have that intermediary but you feel like a comfort level so that you Marcelo can speak to us as if we're as if the camera's not there so you get that immediacy
2: and I was so comfortable that some of my outfit choices and hair choices (laughs) were not they were not right but (laughs) I really they were amazing uh you know being in the room but not being in the room
1: With Veronica Park with the sleet when you're trying on. That was really a terrific sequence. Um, So, oh, you actually, David and and James were here with a film, um, what, two years ago American Cheerleader. So, um, some of you may have seen it. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's so honest that we feel your pain, and yet, there you are when you're performing your heart is in your sleeve because you know that your left foot or you know is giving you a problem and i know that you're still dancing cuz you just did and you are with abt dancing character roles and so forth i would hope that your your uh, pain quotient is less
2: yeah i'm not going anywhere i'm staying <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, shall we take some questions?
2: Uh, sure.
1: Yes. I might have to repeat it. Yeah. uh why, why did his dad speak English so perfectly?
2: He, my father went to school um, in the United States, in Pennsylvania, for a couple of years um, before he went to Brazil and oh, after, sorry, before he moved back to Brazil and then met my mom. So that's, he just learned it.
1: How do you make an emotional connection with your partner and still think about yourself and your
2: role? Well, like I said in the in the movie, I I don't I I start by not thinking about myself really. I think about my partner first. Um and then seeing where that relationship is going to to build. Um obviously there is a lot of communication, just like in life. <laughs> In the partnership, and um, and it's and I think that if you're both kind of going towards the same thing, um, the same breath, or the same peak, or the same low, or the same amount of pirouettes, then uh, you'd be you'd be happy uh, with with dancing together.
1: Maybe in, someone over there. The 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 okay. Right here. Oh. Okay, near the front. Okay. Oh. Near the front. Hard for me to see so the question yeah. was uh,
3: what was your initial thought when you heard about this project, and uh, what was the hardest thing about making this documentary?
2: you know when you agree to to a documentary it's it's you know it's going to be a lot of work. Um, I was afraid that a lot of my time that i that i that I spent preparing was going to be on camera, and it was, and that it was going to bother me um because When you're in the studio, you really want to focus on the work and you don't want to be distracted by somebody taking your picture or filming you um, because you are allowed to make mistakes, you know? Um, But quickly, I could feel that David and James uh, were all kind of going towards the same thing and it was to show the beauty of it all. And of course, how difficult it is, but that it was going to be um, a beautiful film um, and kind of a love letter to, I feel like to me, but also to the art form. Um, And that was very important to me to see that right away uh, with the few um, snippets that they would show me. Um, And the most difficult, um, I'm not sure, I think being injured on camera, is not very pleasant, I must say. Um, it's already difficult when no one's there, but, you know, it's like, is, is the foot going to be ready by the time it, all the tickets are booked to go to Bayadere in Japan? <laughs> you know, it's there was kind of like a little bit of pressure and stuff, so... Um, Suspense. Yeah, but I guess that
0: made for a good...
1: Oh, actually, uh, what I wanted to know is, All the ballerinas that are there, they all adore you. Are any of them here? Yeah. Actually,
2: Julie Kent's here. Julie. And Jillian Murphy. And Stella Brera, who is not in the film, but she's one of my partners. Um, Veronica Parts.
1: Veronica's there. Oh,
2: we made good choices in those costumes.
1: So. <laughs> well, you you seem to have such a intimate relationship with the ballerinas. You really feel like there is a partnership while you're working, not just on stage, but you have a connection.
2: Yeah, I mean for me that's what it's all about.
3: <laughs> yeah.
2: It's not just the time spent in the studio and on stage. It's um, you know, the history that we build together actually increases our connection from when we dance you know we've we've lost friends we've seen each other get married we see each other you know have children <laughs> and breakups and divorces and it's uh, so all of that packed together it's there's no way that we can't build on our life experiences to to be more connected, and and I'm really grateful and honored that my ballerinas allowed me to be part of their lives. Mm.
1: But now I understand, I mean, you have begun choreographing, and you seem more and more interested in that. Is it something you will continue, do you think?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a tough line right now because I'm dancing and for choreographing, uh, you need also time. Uh, and you and I can't be thinking about that I'm gonna be you know dancing in a few weeks while I'm in the studio choreographing with with dancers, um, so sometimes I have to choose one or the other and allow proper time to get ready for my performances, but. Um, I think it's going to be like that for a while, so i right. just have to get used to it. <laughs> well, so
1: you're very much in demand, I'm sure, and you were just in Sarasota. What was that like doing the Frederick Ashton? I actually thing? haven't
2: performed it yet, but oh, it, it's kind of come in March, <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. I see. So soon, Okay. Yeah.
1: Back there, someone back there, maybe, the, Yep. Yeah. When will the DVD come out? <laughs> <laughs> oh, when will the DVD come out?
4: We hope very soon. It's
2: Um, under your seat.
1: We can all...
4: (laughs) (laughs) We hope in fewer than seven years.
1: Yes.
5: Thank you. Uh, Marcelo. your musicality seemed very obvious from an early age. And I'm curious of how much of that is a gift? We saw you in the gym, we saw you in the rehearsal but you're obviously very sensitive to music. How did that develop and is that a gift or is that learned?
2: No, I definitely was um, very musical from an early age. I think my teachers saw that and um, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed being musical. I enjoy listening to music and, and dancing to it. Um, I've had to learn over my <laughs> time, uh, over the years, actually, Uh, musical to a fault Uh, I kind of have to play uh, with phrasing um, with and something that Kevin Mackenzie actually has helped me a lot um, with not to be so on a button but just and you know be a little bit after or before that's also being can you know the music can help you that way so it's been a great great time with music yes
1: Do you play a musical instrument?
2: I do not. No. No. I wish. I wish.
1: But you can be musical without playing a
6: musical. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, uh, Really amazing movie. Marcel, I wanted to ask what you think is uh, really important uh, in the ballet world to energize the next generation of ballet fans.
5: Um...
2: So many things, but I guess what I would say is to really um, open the open your eyes, and I would say to open their eyes and listen and watch and learn. I mean, I think that a lot of older dancers have so much to say and so much to give um, that it's right there, it's right here, and present and. Uh, with you in the studio, you don 't have to go to your phone and watch it on YouTube to see what the what the dancer at in London did you know um, make your own experience you know um, i'm truly i 'm a true believer of that and because I grew up without having those videos uh, that resource to go to and so um it's it helped me kind of develop artistically um in a more rich way i think um so i would say that but otherwise just enjoy dancing you know because it's uh, we're blessed dancers are very blessed to do what we do
6: hi Marcelo. um oh Sorry. Can I ask you a question? Um, yeah. um, within the whole documentary, several people uh, told that Marcelo is perfect. Marcelo is perfect. He's such a perfect guy. I have two questions. First, how do you feel about that somebody saying about you? And second, do you think they speak the truth?
2: <laughs> oh my god, how disappointing would it be, right? If I was like, yeah, they're right. <laughs> Uh, no, I am not as, I mean, as my first teacher said, you know, are there dancers that can go on stage and do more pirouettes? Are there dancers that can go on stage and jump higher? Yes, the, the, the answer is yes. Um, but it's, it's what's inside, really, that sometimes it's more important. Um, I don't think I'm far from perfect, but I know that I will commit to you 110% as okay. an audience and to my colleagues, that, uh, my partners, and to my colleagues that are on stage with me.
1: I think I would use the word genuine. That's the word that comes to mind because some dancers are fantastically gifted and they, you know, pyrotechnics and... But authenticity, genuine, we're not affected in any way. So you feel it. Your heart feels it. That, that's my, that's my Thank definition. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I, I think we only have time maybe for one or two more questions. So this is about uh, Marcelo's Brazilian identity, right? How, but I didn't... How, how, how you relate to it.
2: You know, so, yeah, I went to school at Herod Conservatory for three years and then away in Paris for a year and then 20 years here in New York. Um, I miss home very, very much. I, I love Brazil. I feel culturally sometimes a little bit disconnected because, you know, I go home and I speak to my sister and she's like, you, you know, I don't know a certain type of uh, a singer, the hottest singer at the moment. I don't know what's happening on TV. I don't know the 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 show to watch. Uh, you know, th- those things I feel really far away from. Um, so that that's sometimes a little difficult uh, because I want to. But just my life has carried me in another path, in another culture completely Um and being away from my family. I think it's very difficult. I am a family man and um, my niece is growing up so fast. Um, she also dances and is very talented and um, I wish I could be more part of her life. And and unfortunately, I can't, you know, missing birthdays. And, you know, it's not like I can just hop on a plane and, and go there in and, and five minutes. So it requires a whole, whole lot of planning. Also, when they come here, it's, it's a lot of planning, so. Um, but I feel like I'll never stop uh, having my Brazilian ways. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I am truly, in my heart, I am Brazilian in my blood and um, I love the food and, and I do love the culture and the dancing and, and the happy, the happy people, it's nice.
1: Well, I think that uh, we have to stop now. But thank you very much. So thank great you to have everyone you here. for
4: coming.
0: Loving tells the true story of Richard and Mildred Loving, an interracial couple whose 1967 Supreme Court case ended laws prohibiting interracial marriage. The film stars Joel Edgerton and Ruth Negga and it was written and directed by Jeff Nichols. Ruth Naga is nominated for Best Actress at the Academy Awards this Sunday. Following a recent screening here at the Film Society, Jeff Nichols and Ruth Naga joined film comment editor Nicholas Rapold to talk about the film. Let's go now to their conversation.
6: Thanks so much, Paul, for the film. Thanks. A lot of people have said it already about it, I think, in, in, in reviews and things, but part of what's amazing about it is it's about such a historic event, but it has this kind of quiet aspect to it. It doesn't have to hard sell you about the importance about what it's, what it's about. Um, but what also strikes me is that you really get to know them as a couple and the dynamic between them, you know? It, it seems like that, that must have been really important to, to each of you. Um, uh, if you could talk a bit about about that kind of dynamic. Um, is, that, is that something that you kind of developed by, you know, digging into the story, or, or how did that come about?
5: Well, I think that's what the whole, whole thing's about, really. Um, as important as the court case is, uh, and it is extraordinarily important to uh, our nation and our history, um, just as important as the civil rights movement is, um, Really, I think we were just trying to, to tell a story about two people that loved each other, and as maybe overly simplistic as that sounds, I think, um, I think to do anything else would, would at once betray, you know, Richard and Mildred, but also, I just think it's unnecessary. I, I think it, I think it would. Um, I, I don't. I think an audience when they come in to see a film, I think they bring they bring so much in in terms of their belief systems and their political views and social views. Um, we know that that stuff is going to get laid over the film so so let's focus on on these two people and the specificity of of how they loved one another and really think about um, how they loved one another uh, that that seemed really important to me when I was. You know, breaking this thing down into a into a film, but you probably have a different approach.
7: I am um, no. I would very much agree with Jeff. I think to do it in any other fashion, any other way, would um, not be faithful to this couple. Um, and and I think that everyone involved wanted to be as authentic as possible, and 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 that's how we. Um, um, how um, we we approached the filming and 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 this couple. Um, I think what's so beautiful about this film and, and 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 why it's resonated with people is that it's a it's an, a beautiful truthful exploration of marriage um, and a partnership that isn't um, that is quiet and. Doesn't have those kind of, um, to me, sort of disingenuous dramas that, that sometimes accompany films about love. Um, I think what Jeff's done so beautifully is explore that quiet domesticity and that um, love can be expressed in such small, miniature ways, but can really um, speak volumes. I mean, you know, in, in, the, in the documentary called The Loving Story, the footage with there's um, a wealth of archival footage, uh, and, and those tender little moments, they really sort of radiate um, from, from the screen, and, and, and you make you fall in love with this couple, and, and, and their delicacy, the delicacy towards one another. And I think it's specific, to this couple, but maybe at the time, if they have a really lovely sort of um, amorous politeness.
6: <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, you really feel like they've been together for decades <laughs> already when you, when you see them together. Um, and, and Ruth, you just mentioned the documentary, The, the Loving Story, that. Um, were, were you, had, so you had both seen the documentary and that was part of what kind of brought you in, inspired you to, to continue with the project, right?
5: Sure that's what that's where it all started for me in two thousand twelve um, I had never heard of Richard and Mildred loving um, and Nancy Bersky, who made the documentary The Loving Story, along with Colin Firth, the actor and uh and his producing partner jed doherty uh they were the three first producers on the film. They approached me with Nancy's documentary uh and and asked if I would consider turning it into a narrative film and that was. That was unbelievably important in terms of framing uh, my opinion of them. Because really, since my first viewing of that documentary, that opinion really hasn't changed. It's deepened. Um, but I finished that documentary and said, well, this is a, one of the greatest love stories I've ever seen. And it's, it's great because it's so sincere. And, as Ruth mentions, you watch them in this footage and and in the footage, you're not watching big speeches. you're not watching a, a courtroom drama. you're watching two people walk around their house and play with their kids and um and so, I just thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I could you know lay out a story that gives you that same sense um, would that in a in a way be be more powerful than um than necessarily even you know, hearing the full oral arguments at the Supreme Court or, or something like that. So yeah, Nancy's documentary was important, certainly as a research tool, but also, in terms of, <clears throat> really that initial, you know, idea of how to tackle this, this thing.
6: And and obviously you, you've demonstrated what a wonderful feel you have for. Uh, Kind of s- small town community and really lived in thing i mean your, your first film shot shotgun stories it's just um i mean that's it's everyone should see it if you haven't already um you know you, you can sort of draw a line from that to to the really evocative sense you have in this movie of the community um, and and yet you know <laughs> things happen <laughs> uh, uh i mean I, ruth i wonder how, if you could talk were you familiar with with the case because you had to or,
7: Mm, I think I was familiar with the Loving verse of Ginny, the the idea of that, but I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the couple behind that. Um, I, coincidentally, like Nancy Bersky, had read Mildred Loving's obituary in 2008, and it was quite slim. Um, and I was quite surprised how slim it was considering, you know, what she and Richard achieved. Um, and I could almost find almost nothing about this, this couple. I mean, that's partly to do with their own reticence and laughter. Richard died, um, Mildred very much shied away from the spotlight. But, um, I think I was very surprised that there wasn't, um, people, other people weren't more curious, um, And that's where Nancy came in she became very curious and she was surprised how little she could find. And so she went digging in like the great documentarian she is. She found this archival footage that was meant for a documentary that never um, coalesced, yeah. So, and she wove it into this beautiful piece of work. Um, And I'm not sure now if I'd seen snippets of the documentary because i uh, now I've seen it so many times that I can't remember chicken and egg I can't remember um and i for for Joel and I, I think I can speak for Joel and this that um that footage was instrumental in creating our Mildred and Richard um f- in a very sort of simply physical way and a vocal way um you know, um, the way they moved, the way they um spoke to one another and to the lawyers. Um and it was a really lovely um challenge to to absorb all their physicalities and um and to recreate recreate them. Um because I think what we didn't want to do was we didn't want to be mimics. Um and I think so what was important for us is was to absorb essentially what we've been calling their essence um, and that was that was such a lovely challenge and I think lovely mm, as an actor, but also because it's so lovely to play lovely people <laughs> um, um, I really felt um, a joyfulness um playing Mildred that I, I think it Infused and suffused our set and both Joel and I and I remember I think it was about 10 days till we wrapped and Joel and I were like oh there's only this scene to go and this scene to go and this scene to go and there was a real sense of um, pre-bereftness <laughs> um, about having to depart from this couple um, I mean you go through after performing characters you go through a sort of sometimes it's an exorcism <laughs> and sometimes it's um, a a teary goodbye. Um, And I really didn't want to shake Mildred because she was such a a good person Um, and a lovely, hopeful, joyful person as well. Um, And I think that's something that was very important for Jeff to infuse is that Peggy Loving, she did say that their house was a house of laughter. Um, That amidst all this Pain and trauma. There was joy to be had, um, and I think that was a very an important thread for us team, as well.
6: Yeah, I mean, I mean there's just a sense of an inner, inner um, courage and serenity and grace fundamentally to, to, to her. Yeah, and I, I remember reading somewhere someone describing the film uh, that there's a sense of deep country calm to it, which I thought was a nice phrase as, as well. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I think that... I'll accept that. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, maybe we can have some uh, questions from the audience. Uh, yes, in the front, please.
5: Yeah, he's asking if we met with the children. Um, it's sad, out of the three children, only Peggy Loving, the daughter's still alive. Uh, the two boys passed away, I believe, from cancer. Um, <clears throat> and Peggy's the first person I met in 2012. Uh, I flew to Virginia, to Richmond, to start research. And, uh, and we went out to dinner. and. I quickly realized, you know, Peggy's much like her father. She doesn't talk a lot. I had these questions, you know, was there music in the home? What kind of TV shows did you watch? You know, how much laughter was there? All these things and and just the the questions were few and far between for I think a lot of reasons. One, she is much like her parents. Uh she just isn't seeking the public eye at all. Uh but also she was only 5 years old in 67 when our film ends. Uh, she, you know, she was born in D.C., well into to our story. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a big, big part of it. And also, she had just sat for Nancy's documentary. And in fact, a lot of the people I encountered, they were kind of like, well, we just talked to Nancy, and w- which I understand, and, and I understood. And, and so what Nancy did for me was basically drop off a hard drive that had every interview that she gave um, or conducted and all the outtakes of it. So I just sat, cause she did all the hard work in terms of going into the this rural community with people that don't you know, like to talk m- much period, much less about themselves. And she made all those relationships and ingratiated herself. And so I was able to just sit back and absorb it all. But what Peggy really gave us was permission. And I don't mean in a legal sense, uh, We shared the script with her before we started filming. And Ruth and I went to her home, which she still lives in Central Point, right down from the house that her father built. And I was terrified about what she would think about the script uh, simply because we hadn't had a lot of back and forth about it. And she was in this big, lazy boy, just kind of rocking back and forth and flipping through the pages. And I just... I was just sure she hated it. And then she looked up, and she had tears in her eyes, and she said, they're all gone. And it's just this constant reminder that these are not characters in a movie. You know, these were real people. And we had a responsibility to them, not to show them for more than who they were, but to show them for who they were. And uh, I was tremendously affected by that. And she came to set about three times. And at each point, it was kind of, how we doing Peggy? You know, and she'd give us a thumbs up and 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 she liked the film as well. Um, so it was more about kind of checking in with her and and saying is this is this about right uh, that's That's what it felt like to me at least I'm just going to repeat in
6: case people didn't hear, but it's, it's just an observation that maybe if the case had not turned out the way it did, that maybe their lives would not really have been that impacted or different after that
5: well. Obviously after the case uh, was decided, they were free from any, you know, legal persecution, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were free from other types of persecution. Um, in fact, there's mention of uh, a cross being burned in her mother's yard after the decision. Um, so after the timeline of our film. So I know for a fact, you know, they they constantly, you know, had to put up with um, with judgment from from people. And although it was really hard to find specific details about the time that they were in hiding, which is the back third of the film, um, I can assure you if, if there was a harrowing detail, I put it in. But I really, in, in lieu of having any specific um, aggressive things happening to them, I really just tried to focus on this kind of broader threat, this psychological threat that they had to live under this whole time. And I don't think that necessarily went away after the court decision. Um, so, in a sense, you know, um you're I think you're correct in thinking their lives didn't necessarily change. I mean it's it's just like with the decision about marriage equality in Oberfell recently. Just because the Supreme Court says it's okay uh, for two men to marry each other, doesn't mean in Arkansas, where I'm from, they can walk down the street and it'd be okay. Um, I think society, there's a lag time. Um, They take longer to catch up, so, you know, of course, Richard only had a, a limited amount of years left on this planet after 1967. and I think they probably, um, I think they probably continue to deal with, you know, um, a fair amount of stuff after that.
0: Do you have any kind of sense of the symbolism of this film and how delicate their victory was on decades ago?
5: Sure, I mean, I think it's interesting to note that in 1967, this court decision Uh, by Chief Justice Warren's court was a unanimous one. Uh, I mean, can you imagine that? Uh, So just on the face of things, if nothing else, it it reminds us how important the institution of the Supreme Court is and how important those justices are. But the sad reality is this story was relevant in 67 and it's gonna be relevant in 30 years from now. Um, Equality is not something we ever achieve. We make progress toward it. And I think every generation defines um, themselves against the notion of it. I think in 1967, I think in the 60s in general, huge leaps were taken um, in the ideas of equality in this nation. And I think we can see how quickly those can, can slip away from us. But I think right now, I'm part of a generation that's trying to define equality for ourselves right now. And, and we're lacking a good, a good definition. How, how do we add to the, to the idea of it? And I think that's a, big, that's a big question that's being posed right now, now more than ever. And I think what Richard and Mildred do even if they don't tell you what to think, which is very important about Richard and Mildred. They didn't have an agenda. They really, I don't think they cared about what you guys thought about them. Uh, I think they just loved each other. And I think what that does is it, it, it shows us that all of these divisive issues, all these things, marriage equality, racial equality, socioeconomic inequality, um, these are all issues that have people at the center of them, and we, we just have to remind ourselves of that. Whenever anybody gets really you know, up in arms and stands on their soapbox and starts to get heated in terms of their positioning, now more than ever, especially after a season like we've just been through, just slow down, take a deep breath, and think about the individuals at the center of it. And the hopeful part, and it is hopeful, is that individuals actually did something in this case individuals made a difference by being true to something they felt. And that's important to be reminded right now when it feels like our country has moved one direction and, and another so so forcefully by, by political leanings, that yes, those institutions are great and, and they are powerful, but so is an individual. In this case, so is a couple. Um, and, and I think we can take hope out of that. And I think we need to remind ourselves of that um, because there's extreme power in individuality is my take on it. Yeah, he's asking uh, to talk about, we were the first narrative film to screen at the African American History Museum that just opened in DC. And if, if you all have the opportunity to go, I highly recommend it. Um, it was kind of one of the most important experiences of my life. Um, not just being there to screen. While they screened the movie, they took us on a tour, uh, about a three hour tour, which barely scratches the surface of that place. And I was just floored. The Lovings are in a, like there's a picture of them in a small corner. uh, And that's not to talk about the way the museum feels about the Lovings, it's to talk about the fact that it was just chock full of so many stories, so many parts. Um, that you you realize this is not civil rights history, this is American history, and that our country is is built out of the history of race and our struggles with it. Uh, I was just floored by it uh, i don 't know if you want to speak about your experience with it, but it it reminded me yet again uh of how limited my my point of view is in all this, and I think i 'm a pretty you know I think about this stuff maybe more than than you know your average white guy, but like, it's still I have no idea of the breadth of it. Um.
7: It was in, it was an incredibly moving experience. Um, it was a great privilege to to be the first film screen there. Um, but like just said that, that three hour tr- I would I I would, it would take days two days, I think, to really sort of absorb all of it. Um, It was quite exhausting, it It was very moving, often enraging, all quite saddening, but but there were glimmers of hope as well. Um, I think we were all we were just wiped out from <laughs> me at the end of it. But in a, in, a, in a way that wasn't enervating, it was invigorating. Um, because I think that nothing will change unless there's conversations. Nothing will change unless there's a knowledge that will be um, acquired and accepted and understood and I think we're so resistant to that. We're so resistant, we want everything to be over and fine and grand. And that's just not the reality. And and if we could keep continuing to tell ourselves that false narrative, we will remain stuck. Um, and I think that this museum is, is contributing to that conversation, I mean, it's, quite incredible how, how long it's taken but um it, it that it's 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 there and i think that it's only when we um don't blinker ourselves to history and we don't pick and choose the bits that we want to acknowledge um that we will move closer um to equality like jeff was talking about
5: She's asking if I had any conversations with the lawyers. Yes. In fact, uh, over the Thanksgiving break, I got a call from Bernie Cohen, who went to go see the film, and he took 30 of his neighbors. <laughs> and, uh, and he and his wife were really pleased with it. I still have the voice message on my phone. Um, I was very flattered by that. Um, I first spoke to Phil. Bernie didn't want to talk to us uh, simply because, he, again, he just sat with Nancy And, um, and so Phil was my first point of contact, which, which was interesting because just like with Peggy, I was trying to get personal details and he said, look, you know, we only met him about a half dozen times. Uh, He said, this is in a way, um, and he's a lawyer and I'm sure I'll misquote him, but he basically said, you know, this, this case was, I don't know if he said the most pure, um, in the sense that when they went to DC, married and returned and arrested, they had everything they needed to take this thing to the Supreme Court. Uh, They didn't have to interview witnesses or, or, you know, send out investigators. So the the day-to-day technicalities of the court case were really about navigating the legal system from the state courts, the federal courts, the Supreme Court. It really wasn't about getting details about Richard and Mildred other than the fact that he was white and she was, you know, black and Native American. And so, that, that kind of reaffirmed this approach in a way um, that I wasn't missing something from the doc. It, oh, they really didn't, those, those are two different stories, both fascinating and both very important, but they're kind of, and, and both necessary to one another. But, but if, if you're gonna go follow the lawyers, you're not gonna be with the Lovings because uh, they just weren't together that, that much. But Phil, um, I mean, he's an exceptional human being he went on to become uh, a a truly important civil rights attorney, um, truly important to our nation, uh, and and I think he has defended multiple times in front of the Supreme Court um, uh, constitutional issues. I think uh, you know Bernie Bernie's interesting. Bernie became a politician in Virginia, which I think he was quite suited to. Um, they. They needed one another in that case, I think. Um, there was a big debate about whether or not in the oral arguments, Bernie Cohen should, should mention this line from Richard Loving, tell the judge I love my wife, because that ended up in the oral arguments. And I think Phil and the ACLU's um, standpoint was, it's just emotional, it, it doesn't have anything to do with legality, just leave it out. It's just dramatics. But Bernie, being Bernie, included it. And I think when I, you talk about the unanimous decision, I think that's a part of it. And I think Phil even gives him credit to this day for, for going ahead with it. Um, but that was kind of, I think, indicative of the balance those two men had together in this particular moment. They were so young. And a lot of this is brought out in the documentary and, and why I you know advise people to find it and, and go see it, because it really is interesting. Phil could not uh, argue in front of the Supreme Court because he hadn't been out of law school for more than three years. So he had to be invited in by an older lawyer. Um, and they're just, you know, their story's so interesting. It, it, it really was kind of like a sweater. If you start pulling on it, it'll take you away. You know, Phil was a, a Green Beret at that point. He had served in Vietnam as a Green Beret. Already one tour of duty, I think. So he's just a fascinating guy, as, as is Bernie, you know, but, but different people. Different types of men.
6: I think we're slowly running out of time, but is there another question? Um, I just wanted to ask, I mean, after a performance like this, I'm I'm very curious what you'll be doing next.
7: Oh, I'm going back to do um, a second season of Preacher for AMC.
6: And Fans in the audience. Um, and Jeff, what, what's your next uh, film project?
5: I don't really know. Uh, this is the second movie I made this year. And um, I'm tired. <laughs> and I've, uh, I've been making a movie every year um, since 2010, it feels like. And, and this is the first time I haven't had a script written for what's next, uh, really since my second film. And so I'm uh, really because of your question. Partly, uh, I just want to feel what the world's feeling right now, and um, and I need to see what's next. There are always offers and things floating around. I've been really fortunate in that regard with my career, but uh, but I write my own stuff usually, and um, and I'm toying with everything from. I really want to make this 1960s biker film. Um, but also a big alien movie. I, you know, I'm just kind of having fun with it right now, dreaming about what's possible. Um, but also, you know, the the press tour for this film is really—it's been pretty intense. And you see the power of a film. Um, I mean, it doesn't work for everybody, obviously, but but the people that it does work for, man, it really works for them. And um and all of a sudden I'm struck by this responsibility um, with this gift I've been given in terms of my ability to make films. And uh, I still may go make an alien film, but uh, it will be a different type of one after this experience. Yeah, politically aware alien biker film. <laughs>
0: Just
6: stir it all together, exactly. all right? Um, all right, well, I think that's, we're running out
5: of time. Thank you now. all for thank coming out in the rain.
7: Thank you, thank you very much.
0: The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you.